so thankful that the stripes that you took upon your body with the brutal beating that you received at the hands of those who opposed you has provided healing for our bodies, for our sicknesses. We lift Jill Blackmore to you this morning, Lord, who's once again suffering from uh, lungs that are filling up with fluid. And Lord, we know that Jill has encountered that many times over the past few years. And so, Lord, we pray for your touch upon Jill just now. Thankful, Lord, for your touch upon Brian Griffin as he, Brian Griffith, as he underwent that emergency appendectomy on Thursday this week. Thankful that he's home. And, Lord, he needs our prayers to, to help him in his recovery. Continue to pray for Steve Leet, Lord. We're so grateful that Steve is now back home and recuperating from those injuries. And, Jesus, we just pray that you would continue your healing touch upon him. Lord, we pray for little Axel Rose this week who's been dealing with seizures. God, I I pray for Axel that you would touch and bring healing to his body. And I pray for his mom and dad and sister, Lord, as, as they go through this trial. Lord, we continue to, to pray for all of our elderly shut-ins this, this week, Lord, and just pray that you'd strengthen them, and we're so thankful for them, and Lord, we covet their prayers, so we ask, Lord, that you would strengthen them if nothing, for nothing else, Lord, that they can continue to pray for us. And Lord, we thank you for every person here this morning. Lord Jesus, we'd rather be here than the best hospital room in the city. And God, we, we just thank you for health, and we thank you, Lord, for the ability to, to come to church to worship you. But again, most of all, Lord, we thank you that we have opportunity to worship you, for you are worthy of our praise and our adoration. And we ask that you would have complete control of every aspect of the furtherance of this service this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Ushers, would you come, please? Do we receive your Sunday tithe and offering? I was very tempted to take up the offering after the message this morning, but uh, I was afraid my deacons would have a heart attack and think that I had forgotten it once again. So we'll go ahead and take the tithe and offering, but I want you to notice during the message this morning how applicable it is that that God who gives us his love so freely and asks us to give it back to him in service and in obedience. And this is just one of the ways that we do that. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon the giving this morning. Bless gift and giver alike and multiply these gifts to cover every need of this church. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Thank you, worship team. Always appreciate your help. Again, just a reminder for those of you who may have come in late, uh, this Wednesday evening is a very special Wednesday because uh, Trinity Kids are going to be serving the parents of our Trinity Kids a Valentine's dinner. And uh, it will begin at 7 o'clock. The kids' dinner always starts at 6, but they're going to be serving the parents at 7. And it would be a great opportunity for those of us here today who are a part of our service every Sunday to be there just to welcome them and greet them and make them feel comfortable. So uh, I'm sure that they will have plenty. So uh, be sure and be here on Wednesday evening and make this an opportunity to just reach out to those parents who who we are so thankful that they let us have their kids on Wednesday evening. We are in the book of Deuteronomy this morning as we begin part two of our sermon series, Loving God and Loving Each Other. And I want to share with you the first 32 verses of Deuteronomy chapter number 11. I'm going to warn you that over the next several months, you're probably going to hear this phrase a lot, to love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And you'll hear it several times in these words from Moses as he addresses the people of Israel by saying, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider today, since I'm not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider The discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his outstretched arm. His signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land. And what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots. How he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you. And how the Lord has destroyed them to this day. And what he did to you in the wilderness until you come to this place. And what he did to Dothan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of, it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart And with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give you grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving to you. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, 
And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon, and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I'm commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road, toward the going down of the sun in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the Oak of Moreh? For you are to cross over the Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall possess it and live in it. You shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I am setting before you today. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for promising to those people to whom Moses was addressing the promised land. And thank you, Lord, symbolically for the land that you have promised to those of us who serve you faithfully in obedience and trust. And Lord, make us faithful to be recipients of your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. A rather long passage of Scripture, I'm sure you would agree. Earlier in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses had already told the children of Israel that they had to love the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Then here in chapter number 11 that we read from, Moses again tells the people of Israel that they must love the Lord, but his emphasis here is on how to love the Lord. Now last week when we began this sermon series, we talked about the two great commands that the Lord Jesus gave. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. So we know the commands, now how do we do them? How first do we love the Lord our God? Um, Years ago, uh, Gary Chapman, many of you probably heard of, of Gary Chapman, he wrote a great book that's still popular today, it's called The Five Love Languages. And in that book, Gary Chapman writes about various love languages by which people communicate their love for one another, and he suggests that there are... Uh, excuse me, there is a distinct personal way 
in which every person gives and, and or receives love. Um, without taking the time to speak of those ways, I will just say to you that his argument is that in order to have a, a healthy relationship, you need to learn your partner's love language and you need to communicate love to your partner in a way that speaks to them in a way that they can feel and experience love. Now, having said that, have you ever wondered what God's love language is? Actually, he does communicate his love to us in a very clear way. It's found in a very familiar passage of Scripture in the Gospel of John, chapter number 3, verse number 16 and 17, where John says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then John, in a later epistle in 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, builds on that thought with these words. He said, he said there, Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So God communicates his love for us, for the world, by sending his son to die at the cross to pay for our sins. But how do we communicate love to God? Well, I believe that Moses gives us the answers to those questions here in Deuteronomy chapter number 11. And the message of that chapter is simply this. To love God is to obey God. Now, love for God is, is not about a feeling on Sunday morning. It's, a lot, it's about a life of devotion every day of our lives. Devotion to God. Again, John chapter 14, verse number 15, the words of Jesus. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Love for God is not an option, friends. It's an obligation for those of us who love him, who are called by him. Our chief duty to God is to love him, and we are to love him by our obedience. And, and Moses teaches us on that here in Deuteronomy chapter number 11. He issues for us three challenges to love God by obeying. And I want us to consider this morning, first of all, the call to loving obedience. You know, the book of Deuteronomy records what I see as three farewell speeches that Moses gives to the children of Israel as they prepare to cross into the promised land that God has given to him. Now, for those of you who may not know this, Moses, their leader, is not going to be permitted to go into the promised land. And do you know why? Because of disobedience. But he's telling them here, he's, God is using Moses here to spiritually prepare the people of Israel to finally claim the promise of the land that God had given them. And he's only doing it after they've been wandering in this wilderness for nearly 40 years because of disobedience. Our text is a part of the second of those three speeches that make up this book. And this second speech of Moses in chapters 5 through 11 
is really just made up of general exhortations to obey God. And one way or another, he's preaching the same sermon in these chapters 5 through 11. And it's this, when you get into that land that I'm giving you, make sure that you continue to obey God. And then in chapter 12 and going forward, he's going to lay out the stipulations, the commands, the statutes, and, and what those things look like in detail. But, but up to this point, he's just giving these general calls to obedience. But notice the language. Notice the language with which he calls them to obedience in verse number 1. He says, Love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands Always. Here from the very first verse, he's laying down this foundational truth of the chapter. Love God and do what the word of God tells you to do. How many of you know that's not popular in our culture today? To be told what to do and to do it. And so, if you think it's a challenge to us... It's a challenge to the people of Israel because they realize that they've been wandering in this wilderness for 40 years and they're going to continue to wander in that wilderness until every one of that older generation has died off so that the younger generation can go in and possess the land. Now, that may seem kind of cruel, but it's a consequence It's a consequence of a choice that they made to disobey God 40 years ago. Uh, Verse 2, he's telling them to consider today who the God that they serve really is and what he's done for them. He's saying that if you're going to lovingly obey God, you've got to consider who he is, you've got to remember who he is, you've got to set your mind on who he is, and you can't let anything distract you from who he is. You'll notice a set of parentheses in verse number 2 where Moses says, I'm not talking to your children about these things. They haven't seen and they don't know of what I'm about to tell you. I'm talking to you. He's telling them right there, you know what? The reason you've wandered in this wilderness is because of your disobedience. Your kids that you've had in the meantime didn't have anything to do with that. But they are going to learn from your example what it means to obey God And what the consequences are of disobeying God. The children of this generation of people that Moses addresses, they weren't in Egypt. They they hadn't experienced all the wilderness wanderings firsthand. And I don't know that Moses is doing this, but it almost sounds as as if Moses is giving their children an excuse because they've only heard about these things. But he's telling these parents, hey folks, you're way too experienced to try to go your own way and not go God's way. You ought to know by now the consequence. And I believe that ought to speak to even those of us today. You know, there are some new believers in the world who are, who are, who've got some growing up to do. I'll just put it that way. But there are some of us who've seen God do so much for us in our lives, we shouldn't have any desire to continue in our foolish ways. We ought to know better by now, right? Uh, Look in the middle of the verse again. 
Moses says, consider the discipline of the Lord, the training of the Lord, the instruction of the Lord. He's pointing them back to their experiences with God from being brought out of the land of Egypt all to all that they went through while wandering in the wilderness. And I believe, again, that he's telling them and he's telling us that this was a moral education for them. In other words, the ups and downs, the highs, the lows, the successes, the failures, it's called life. We've all experienced every one of those things in our lives. But you know what God calls it? He calls it school. And I believe he's telling them that through the ups and downs, the highs and the lows, and the wins and the losses, that God is trying to teach us something. He's trying to train us. He's trying to discipline us. He's trying to instruct us and prepare us. And Moses, I believe, is saying, and this is my translation, you folks have learned so much, you ought to be getting better grades by now. So consider who God is because you already know. You just need to keep it before you. Specifically, he tells them about four things in verses 3 through 6. He tells them that God has done signs and wonders in their midst. He first did them to e- in Egypt to Pharaoh, who was the ruler of Egypt, and to all the land of Egypt. You see, if you'll remember, God had sent Moses more than 40 years ago down into Egypt to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. They'd been bound in slavery for 400 years, and God was ready to bring deliverance to his people and to take them to the land that he'd promised to them. But Pharaoh had a hard heart, and he wouldn't obey what Moses had asked him to do. So God sent ten plagues on the land of Egypt until Pharaoh changed his mind. Moses says, you saw what God did to Pharaoh. You saw what he did to the land of Egypt. And then in verse 4 he says, You also saw what God did to the Lord, to the armies of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots. You see, what happened was, Pharaoh finally decided to let the children of Israel go, uh, to leave Egypt. But once they'd left, he changed his mind and he started pursuing them with his armies. But Moses reminds them here, you saw how the Lord made the water of the Red Sea part for you to walk through and can then come back together as they followed you and pursued you and how the Lord destroyed them, their horses, their chariots to this very day. And by the way, if you don't believe that, they're now discovering the artifacts of chariots at the bottom of that sea. The Bible is true. It's true. And we can trust it. Moses is reminding the people, you've seen what God does to people who don't obey. Moses says, you also saw what he did for you in the wilderness. Moses told them how God had put a, put a whipping on their enemies. But here in verse 5, he reminds them that they shouldn't forget that they were at times in the wilderness themselves. And that, in essence, was God getting the belt out for them too. You see, God had to punish them. He had to, he had to bring consequences for their disobedience. And then he gives a specific example in verse 6. He says, you saw what he did to Dothan and to Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben. Here Moses is referring to a story that takes place back in the book of Numbers chapter 16 about the rebellion of Korah. 
Now Korah rebelled against Moses and the people of Israel. Dothan and Abiram uh, were just his cohorts, although Moses doesn't specifically mention Korah here. Uh, he just mentioned his tagalongs, and I think he does that as a warning to us you, that you better be careful uh, how, how you let people lead you astray. But Korah, the story goes like this. Korah stood up against Moses one day, and I'm giving you my translation. And he said to Moses, Moses, you're not the only one that God can speak to. You keep telling us that what to do and, and what not to do, and And we're just like you. We're all equal. All of us can talk to God and all of us can talk for God. We don't need you acting like you're in charge of everybody because we can all communicate with him just like you can. Well, when Moses hears this, the Bible story tells us that Moses falls on the ground and he says, go get your censer and we're going to have a test and see who God really speaks to. And then Moses tells the rest of the children of Israel... You better get a long ways away from Korah's house. Get far away from Dothan's house. Get far away from Abiram's house. Because when Korah and his sidekicks get ready to to show how close they were to God, the Bible tells us that the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them. And he did it right in the midst of the congregation of Israel. Whoa. They're bragging about how close they were to God. So God just opens up a huge sinkhole in their neighborhood. The earth swallows them up. Well, Moses goes on in verse 7. He says, your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. And some of that great work, friends, was not good stuff, but it just showed how powerful God is. The great works that he's referring to in these verses are acts of punishment on disobedience. And this is the first reason that Moses says why we should all lovingly obey God. Because when you determine to live life on your own terms, God knows how to put you in your place. Amen? So it's a good idea to obey God. Then we move to verse 8 through 25. And in verses 8 through 25, there's not only a call to loving obedience, but the consequences of loving obedience. Again, verses 1 through 7 that we just concluded, they are a warning of judgment on disobedience, but verses 8 through 25 are a promise of God's blessing for obedience. How many of you much prefer blessing to cursing? Amen. So you'll like this part. And I don't want anyone to misunderstand that I'm suggesting that you can manipulate the hand of God by doing good stuff to put God on your side. That's not what this is about. This simply means that the nature of God is such that it makes him inclined to be generous to his people. And with his mighty hand and with his outstretched arm, he's always pouring out blessing upon blessing upon blessing for those who walk in obedience. You know what our role is? Our role is just to make sure our cup is in the right position to receive what God is pouring out to us. Are your hands open to receive God's blessing? 
it's important that you have your cup in the right position. Because Moses says, if you'll obey God, he's going to bless you. And then he starts describing the blessing. He says, God will bless you, first of all, with land. He says in verse 8, you shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Now note, I use the word whole. Go in and take possession, or, or go and keep the whole commandment. Not some of the commands, but all of the commands that God has given. Did you know, you, you see, part of, the, part of the thing that each one of us deal with, I pray that it's each one of us, not just me, is this idea of selective obedience. Hello? Did you know that there's a very biblical word for selective obedience? It's called disobedience. <laughs> if it's not obedience, friends, if you pick and choose what you're going to obey. Moses says you have to keep the whole commandment of God. The whole commandment. And then if you do, these will be the four consequences, if you want to call them consequences. You'll be strong, you'll go in, you'll take possession of the land, and then fourthly, verse number 9 tells us that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, I, I, I know that you're thinking by now, boy, this is a lot of repeti repetition, Pastor. Well, it is. But there's a purpose in repetition. So that we'll get it through our thick head. The importance of what God is saying. But you'll notice that here in verse 9, there's a new phrase. Or in verse 8, excuse me. He says in verse number 8 that if you obey God for the first time, he says you will be strong. You know, there's a real sense in which disobedience handicaps our strength. But when you are determined to do God's will no matter what, God will always make sure that we've got the strength to do it. No matter what the obstacles might be. He's saying here that if God catches you being obedient, he's going to bless you. He'll bless you with land. Am I hearing things? Oh, okay. Okay. I, I, you know, I talk to myself a lot, but usually it's not audible. That's okay, Lori. I didn't mean to embarrass you. Now, now, I want you to hear me on this. Uh, again, that thought. If God catches you being obedient, he's going to bless you. And here in this specific case, he says, he's going to bless you with land. Now, I know that we in the, the evangelical churches like to spiritualize everything. But Moses isn't spiritualizing anything here. When he says he will give you land, he means God's going to give them land. 
Now that's important for us to understand in light of modern events. It doesn't represent something else. If you go home this afternoon and you turn on the TV and you turn on the news and you hear about a dispute in the Middle East, it's because they understand something that we don't often pay attention to. When God says he's going to bless them with land, he means land. And they've been fighting over that land for 6,000 years. The God who chose a people also chose a land. And God put his name on the signature line, and in doing so, he declared that the evidence of his faithfulness to his people that he chose is that he's going to be faithful also to the land that he chose. That's why you often hear me when I'm praying, pray for people, the people of Israel. For God to bless the people of Israel. You know why? Because if we don't, we will get God's curse upon us. We are blessing what God has chosen. He's chosen the people of Israel. He's chosen the land that they live in. And they can fight and dispute about that land all they want to, but I'm telling you this morning, it's God's land, and the New Testament tells us that when Jesus comes back, he's going to set up his millennial kingdom on that land, and there he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. That land is important to God. He's saying the land that you are entering to take possession of it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come. Egypt is a dry, arid land, and they've set up a system to cultivate their land. They plant seed with expectation of harvest, and they water it, and they grow vegetables in this desert place. But here's what God is saying through Moses, and it's not a negative thing by any stretch of imagination. It's a good thing. He's saying in Egypt, you had a job, you had a house, you had possessions, you had a paycheck, you had resources, and there's nothing wrong with that. Now, apart from their slavery and their harsh treatment, there was good stuff that these people enjoyed in Egypt. And if you don't believe that, just go back to their wilderness journeys. There during the wilderness journey when they'd get frustrated with Moses and frustrated with God that because God didn't move in the way that they thought God should move, they'd complain to Moses and say something like this. Can we just go back to Egypt? At least there, we knew where the water was going to come from. At least in Egypt, we had houses to live in. We're out here living in tents. We had jobs there. We're just wandering around out here. And they'd go on griping and moaning and groaning and complaining. And God is saying to them, are you ready for this? Some of you are going to the promised land with an Egypt mentality. But let me tell you something, friends. The land that you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven. God is not just speaking about an agricultural geographical place. Verse 12 tells us he's talking about a land that he personally cares for. He personally pays attention 
to that land. And he goes on to tell them the eyes of the Lord your God are always upon that land. From the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Friends, the real issue about the dispute in the Middle East is not a political issue. It's not an ethnic issue. It's not a military issue. It's this. That land is important because God has declared, my eyes are always on that land. That land matters to God. The land of Canaan, before the people of Israel went there, they worshiped the God of Baal. Baal was a fertility god. And they believed that when Baal was present, the rains would fall and the land would become fertile. But during the dry seasons, they claimed that Baal had gone somewhere far away and was in seclusion. And because he was in seclusion somewhere far away, the rain wouldn't come until he came back to make the rainfall. Listen to how God throws shade at those thoughts. He says, don't worship a God who goes into hiding and can't help you when you need it. My eye is on that land from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. You know, I've heard people, particularly in the Pentecostal realm, say, I believe that this is going to be my season. I believe this is going to be my season in the Lord, spiritually speaking. Can I just tell you something? I don't need a season. I've got a God who is watching over me from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, all four seasons, and if I obey him and I trust him and I put my confidence in him, he's going to take care of me. Amen? Verse 13, God is saying, and if you'll indeed obey my commands that I command you to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul... And again, let me call your attention to the cluster of three terms here. Obey God, love God, and serve God. Did you catch that? Obey God, love God, and serve God. Because to love God is to obey God, and to obey God is to serve God. He says if you'll do this, he's going to give you rain for your land in its season. Early rain, later rain. That you may gather in the grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give you in your fields, grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Do you know when God's people are the most happy? When they're full. Both physically and spiritually. But for our purposes this morning, be full spiritually. You'll be happier when you're full spiritually. The key to provision in life, friends, is not the weather. It's not the government. It's not the economy. It's your relationship with God. If you lovingly obey God, he's going to take care of everything. And it doesn't matter what the economy, no matter what the weather is, no matter who's in charge of the government, God's going to take care of you. How many of you found that to be true in your life? Amen. If you don't obey God, the other side of that coin is he's going to shut up heaven to force you to recognize where your real help does come from. 
And again, that speaks directly to us. Oh, I know Moses is speaking this more than 3,000 years ago. But his words apply to us. We can't afford to let anything or anyone become between our relationship with God. You know why? He's also promised us a land. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And when I come again, I'll receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He'll bless us with fruitfulness. He'll bless us with victories even in this life. Let me move on. To develop a life of loving obedience to God, you've got to saturate your life with the Word of God. In other words, you need to be getting the Word when you wake up. You need to be getting the Word when you lay down, when you go out and when you come in, when you're by yourself and when you're with your family. You need to live according to the Word of God. The keys to God's blessing, friends, are found in God's word. The psalmist talks about it in the first three verses of Psalm chapter number one. I remember learning them as a little kid. Here's the way they go. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Wow, that's three great verses of scripture right there. Friends, if you'll saturate your life with the word of God, look at what verse 21 says will happen. Your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. And then in verse 22 he says, For if you'll be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways, holding fast to him. And again, notice the cluster of terms. Do his command. Love him. Walk in his ways. Hold fast to him. If you will live in loving obedience to God, this is what God will do. He will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations that are greater and mightier than you are. Wow. Then he goes on to say, Every place on which the sole of your feet tread shall be yours. That's the literal promise about the land that he was talking about. Your territory is going to extend from the wilderness to Lebanon and from the river, that is the Euphrates River, to the Western Sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the distress of you, the dread of you, excuse me, on all the land that you shall tread as God has promised. I hope you're catching this this morning. Friends, if you will lovingly obey God, God knows how to put you right where you're supposed to be. And once you get there, he also knows how to take care of every one of your needs. And not only will he take care of every one of your needs, but if someone rises up against you, he knows how to fight your battle. Kind of reminds me of a popular song. 
This is how I fight my battles. It may seem like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. Wow. How many of you need God to fight your battles for you? How many of you figured out by now you aren't strong enough, you aren't smart enough, you aren't powerful enough to fight the foes of this world on your own? You need God to fight your battles for you. Again, verses 1 through 7 contain the call to loving obedience. If you don't obey God, he's going to put you in your place. Verses 8 through 25 contain the consequence of loving obedience. God blesses it. And then we move to those last seven verses, verses 26 through 32. They are the choice of loving obedience. Let me say that in another way. In verses 1 through 25, Moses preaches the sermon. And then in verses 26 through 32, he opens the doors of the church. He's finished his major point, and he's now saying, so what are you going to do in response to the word that I've just shared with you? What are you going to do with it? How are you going to respond? Well, I found that there are two ways for us to live. There's the way of divine blessing, and there's the way of divine cursing. Choose what you want. You know, we live in a culture that loves the word choose. Moses said, folks, you're free to live any way that you want to live, so choose it. It's your life, our culture says. Our culture says it's your body. Do what you want to with it. It's your world. Choose how you want to live in it. It's right up our culture's alley. Live independently. Call your own shots. Live self-sufficient. Recognize that no one really has authority over you. You are your own guard. You, God, you are the one calling your shots. So live any way you choose to live. Well, they're right about that part. You can choose to live any way you want. But there's another part that Moses talks about that they may not want to talk about so much. Because you see, with choices come consequences. I know most everyone, if not all of us, have figured that out by now. But let me put it to you just real simply. If you wanted to, you could go to New York City this morning, take an elevator to the roof of the New World Trade Center, and choose to jump off. That's your choice. But after that, you're out of choices. Once you choose to jump, you've got to deal with the outcome of your choice. Now, I know that makes perfect sense to us. But all of life works that way. There are consequences to our choices. In fact, some of the choices that we make will hinder our future choices. A momentary choice can end up having lifelong consequences. And Moses is not just saying, make your choice. He's saying, do the right thing because God punishes disobedience, but he blesses obedience. Remember, divine blessing Divine cursing. That's your choice. 
And I'm closing with just an examination of the last four verses. Because here Moses shifts his focus to their future. He says, when the Lord your God has brought you into the land, you are to take possession of it. And he tells them that he wants them once there to have a special, what I'm calling, worship service. And here's what the worship service is to look like. Moses says, I want you to have one service in two different locations. One on Mount Gerizim and one on Mount Ebal. And the next leader after Moses, if you want to go on and see this come to pass, the next leader who follows Moses, his name is Joshua. And in his book, the eighth chapter, he actually carries this worship service out exactly as Moses has instructed them to do. And here's how God wants this service to go. Half of the tribes of Israel were to climb Mount Gerizim, and the other half of the tribes were to climb Mount Ebal. And a priest at Mount Gerizim would announce all the blessings of God, written in Deuteronomy, and the people would respond by affirming those divine blessings. And at the same time, a priest on Mount Ebal would announce all of the curses of God that are written in the book of Deuteronomy, and the people would affirm those curses. Moses is saying to them, I'm almost through here on earth with my preaching ministry, and I won't be able to go into the land uh, with you to remind you that you've got a choice. So when you get into that land without me, I want you to have this special service on two major mountains so that as you live in that land, all you've got to do is to look at that Mount Gerizim or Mount Ebal and be reminded that you better make the right choice. Because one mountain represents blessings and the other mountain represents cursings. Now here's why this is so important. Where are these two mountains? Well, if you look at verse number 30, Moses says, are they not beyond the Jordan River? In other words, they're on the, in the promised land. They're, they're west of the road going toward the going down of the sun. The land of the Canaanites who lived in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the Oak of Moreh. Now, where have we heard about the Oaks of Moreh before? Those geographical places often get confusing, I know. But but this is in the area that's known as Shechem. This is where, according to Genesis chapter number 12... God first spoke to their forefather, whose name was Abram, or we know him better as Abraham, and said, Abraham, I want you to leave your daddy's house, and I want you to go to a land that I am promising you. Well, once Abraham got to that land, he there built an altar near the Oaks of Moreh, and Jacob, Abraham's grandson, bought land near these oaks of Moray. And not only did he buy land, but he dug a well there. Centuries later, John chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, we are told the story of Jesus meeting a woman at the well. And as a result of that meeting, this Samaritan woman goes back to her village And her entire village is brought to belief 
in Jesus Christ. And Abraham's great-grandson, whose name was Joseph, was also buried by these oak trees in Moray. The association of these oak trees of Moray is not just with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, but it's more specifically about the idea of covenant relationship. God is saying, I want you to have this service, this special service near the trees of Moray, where I made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so that when you get in the land, you will have a landmark reminder that I am a God who always, always, always keeps my promises. Covenant. Covenant. And God, I believe, is saying to us, I may not always work according to your schedule. And even though I may not come when you want me to come, I will always be right on time. If you want to know that I'm a good God, if you want to know that I'm a faithful God, if you want to know that I am a covenant-keeping God, I want you to have a service by the oak trees of Moray. Can I just tell you something, friends? That same God is still good. That same God is still faithful. That same God is still a covenant-keeping God. Do you need to be reminded of those truths every once in a while? I do. Do I need to be reminded that when we are unfaithful that God is still faithful? Because, you see, I explained this last week, but I'll tell you again. There's a difference between a covenant and a contract. In a contract, it requires performance of both parties who sign the contract. But in a covenant, no matter if one party breaks their end of the deal, the other party is going to remain faithful to what they have signed for. So even when we fail, even when we fall flat on our faces... God is still faithful. His mercy still endures. His grace is still available to cover whatever it needs to cover. When our love fades, his love doesn't. When we don't keep our word, he still keeps his. And I close with this thought. As long as we're talking about trees, let's talk about another tree. Not the trees in Moray, not the trees on Mount Gerizim or Ebal, but another tree on another mountain where on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. You know, all of us, each of us, have failed to love God in the way that we should. But if you run to the cross and you bow there at that tree and you trust in the one who paid the price on that tree, right there at that tree, you can have a fresh start. 
you can have a new beginning. You can find an eternal hope. Worship team, would you come please? Lord Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness. God, it's so amazing to me that every time that we mess up, which at least for me is more times than I care to mention, you're so faithful. We talked about last Sunday about that good Samaritan going, being willing to go down into the ditch and help that person in need. And God, every time that I've messed up, you've been faithful to get down in that ditch, to pick me up by the hand, and instead of pointing a finger of judgment at me, asking how I could have been so stupid, you put your arm around me. And you say, let me help you get back on the road. Jesus, I thank you for that. I thank you for that kind of faithfulness. I thank you for that, Jesus. And Lord, the desire of my heart, and I pray the desire of every heart in this room this morning, this morning that's beating, is to live in loving obedience to you. God, I want all that you have for me. I want everything that you have for me, both in this life and in the life to come. And according to the promise of your faithful word, which you as the faithful God have written, every promise in that book can be mine if I walk in faithful, loving obedience to you. Friends, if you believe that this morning, I want you to join me in standing to your feet. And I don't know what you're comfortable with this morning, but I'm going to make a suggestion to you. Just lift your hands and tell the Lord you love him this morning as we sing this song. I love you, Lord, and I lift my morning and you may be struggling trying to live in loving obedience to Jesus I'm here to tell you this morning you're not on your own he sent his Holy Spirit to come alongside you to empower you to do things that you could never have hoped to do in your own strength the Greek word is paraclete He's come alongside you as the paraclete to beat up every bully you come up against. And I don't know about you, but I need that in my life.
Let's sing it again and just make it a make it your pledge, your promise to God that you're going to live in loving obedience. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to You know what, friends? Here's the deal, and I hope we all understand this. I hope we all practice this. Worship is not something you do on a Sunday morning. Well, that's part of it. But worship is something that you live. You live lives of worship. You were created to be instruments of worship. And the greatest worship that you can give to Jesus is to obey him. <laughs> not about lifting your hands. Not about swinging from a chandelier or jumping a pew. <laughs> the greatest worship that you can give him is to walk in loving obedience to him. Now let that refine your definition of what worship is. And Heavenly Father, as we leave this place this morning, may we be mindful of the fact that when we step outside of those front doors, we have become living testimonies to a lost and dying world. And Lord, if they see in our, the way that we live our lives of worship, that we lovingly live in obedience to what you have called us to do and called us to be, Lord, they will see you in us. And you have told us in your word that if you be lifted up, you will draw all men to yourself. And so, Lord, let us be very aware of the fact that we are instruments of worship in the way that we live before you. Be with us as we leave this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.